the eyes are fundamentally the most powerful driver of what we think, what we feel, and ultimately what we can do because they set the basic level of alertness. Vision has such a powerful effect on how we feel at a basic level and has such a tremendous capacity to shift how we feel and how we perform cognitively and behaviorally that we realized that we had to study how vision drives stress, how vision drives calm, how vision drives the ability to move through complex environments or high stress environments, and really trying to understand how we see the world, how we view the world drives our experience of life, both internally and in terms of what we can do externally. All right, welcome back or welcome to the Finding Mastery Podcast. I just gotta tell you, I love this community. I love what we are building here. And if you're new, my name is Michael Gervais by trade and training. I'm a sport and performance psychologist as well as the co-founder of Compete to Create. And the whole idea behind these conversations is to sit with people who have dedicated their life efforts towards the nuances of their craft. And in some cases, these conversations are really about mastery of self, other times it's a hybrid between that and mastery of craft. And really what we're doing is we're trying to understand how do they organize their inner life to explore the external world? How do they make sense of themselves and explain events that take place? What are they really searching for? And then what are the mental skills that they use to build and refine their craft? Finding Mastery is brought to you by Bubs Naturals. Like you, I am mindful about what I put into my body. So for me, it usually comes down to ingredients and simplicity. The shorter the list, the better. And that's why I've been loving Bubs Naturals. Bubs creates products with high quality, all natural ingredients that are designed to help us get after the adventures in life. For years, I've been a huge fan of their hydrate or die electrolyte mix. I mean, that's a fun title for a product, isn't it? It only has six total ingredients. It's packed with electrolytes. I love the taste. No added sugar, no artificial flavors, none of that stuff. It's great for post-workout recovery. That's when I use it. And I also use it during long periods of travel, which I've been doing a lot lately. And so thank you for the hydration here. And a ton of athletes that I know swear by them too. They're currently in just about every MLB locker room. They work closely with the Red Sox, the Yankees, I know the Rangers, Cardinals. Diamondbacks, and, and many more, of course. I'd love for you to go check them out. I think they're doing a really nice job. Just head to bubsnaturals.com slash findingmastery and enter the code findingmastery at checkout for 20% off your first purchase. Again, that's bubsnaturals, B-U-B-S naturals.com slash findingmastery with the code findingmastery for 20% off your first purchase. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Hims. Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-informed treatments for erectile dysfunction (ED), hair loss, weight loss, and more. Health struggles like ED are common, but they can be hard to talk about when it comes to finding a solution. That's why Hims has been a game changer for so many men. The entire process is 100% online and if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms, no pharmacy visits. Plus, you can manage your plan directly on the HIMSS app. 
track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. So if you or a loved one has been struggling with ED, I really want to encourage you to go check out Hims. And I know ED often has a psychological component as well. So be sure that you're stacking some psychological best practices into your daily routine as well. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash finding mastery. That's hymns, H-I-M-S dot com slash finding mastery for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash finding mastery. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash EOF for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Now, this week's conversation is with Dr. Andrew Huberman, a neuroscientist and a tenured professor in the Department of Neurobiology at the Stanford University School of Medicine. Andrew's made some incredible contributions to the field of brain development, brain function, and neuroplasticity, which is fancy for just saying it's the ability for our brain and our nervous system to rewire and learn new behaviors, skills, and cognitive functioning. Now, he's a McKnight Foundation and a Pew Foundation Fellow and was awarded the Kogan Award in 2017, which is given to the scientists making the largest discoveries in the study of vision. So what does vision have to do with you and our community here on Mastery? Well, as it turns out, we are visual creatures. (laughs) And so we are highly attuned to our environment around us. And our visual experience is actually in many ways a brain experience. And so Andrew is actively involved in developing tools now that some of them are in use by military in the U.S. and Canada also by athletes and technology industries for optimizing performance in high-stress environments. He's also engaged in enhancing neuroplasticity, mitigating stress, and optimizing sleep. Now, in this conversation, we discuss the influences of vision as well as breathing, respiratory, on human performance and brain states such as fear and courage. You know those are two of my favorite conversations. And with that... Let's jump right into this week's conversation with the legend, Dr. Andrew Huberman. Andrew, how are you? Doing great. How are you, Michael? <laughs> yeah, fantastic. I, I am so stoked to have this conversation with you. I've really enjoyed following your work, and um, it's very nuanced. It's uh, very relevant, and it's incredibly applied for, you know, kind of the frontier of reimagining what it means to do well in life. And so I I can't wait to get into the weeds with you uh, to understand as a neuroscientist what you've come to understand and how to make that as applied as we possibly can. Um, That being said, you know, like I want to get some context. I want to understand how you got to be not only at one of the most influential um, schools in the world, Stanford University, but to also like your path to understand and break open a unique pathway in the brain um, that you guys have figured out. So before we get into those insights and weeds, you know, what was it like growing up? Where'd you come from? What'd you come to understand? Well, I was born into a scientific family, if there is such a thing. Um, So my dad's a scientist. He was born and raised in Argentina. 
and actually came to the States on a naval scholarship to do graduate school. There wasn't much support for science or studies of any kind uh, related to science there. Uh, and he met my mom in New York and they moved out to California and had me and my sister. And we actually grew up in Palo Alto. I was born in Stanford Hospital. The joke I always make is I was born in Stanford Hospital. I trained at Stanford. I'm now a professor at Stanford. I'll probably die at Stanford, um, but hopefully a long time from now. So um, Palo Alto is very different back then. We lived in on the south side of Palo Alto, which was by no means a, um, a rough neighborhood, but it was that where you found um, single story homes. You know, this was before the dot com craze, of course. I'm 44 years old. So this is, I was born in 75. So, you know, it was professors and um, uh, people who worked in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley was just a lot of engineers, really. Um, and people worked at Hewlett Packard and the Veterans Hospital. Incidentally, the Veterans Hospital, where you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest was sort of conceived in, um, in the mind of some, uh, Stanford related folks. And, uh, you know, so for, to put a little context, so, you know, the area that I grew up in was rich with engineering and science. Um, there were a lot of places to ride my bike around. There were a bunch of kids at the end of the street in a cul-de-sac, a bunch of, um, kids my age who played all the time. So my mom was a writer and my dad was a theoretical physicist. And so we would spend summers at a place called the Aspen Center for Physics. Every kid's dream. No, it's interesting because every every other kid, you know, their dad was into Boy Scouts or Cub Scouts or going to soccer games or, you know, really like sports. And, my, you know, my dad had a very different outlook on on that. You know, he thought he was perfectly uh, supportive of me playing soccer and things like that, but wasn't really interested in going to the games. Um, definitely was not interested in Boy Scouts or Cub Scouts. He, you know, his his frame of reference was very different. And, you know, so growing up um, in my household, there were a lot of discussions about science. My mom wrote children's books and we had graduate students over for dinner and that kind of thing. So I grew up kind of in the nest of ideas around science, people talking about ideas. We, you know, I was fortunate enough that because theoretical physics was uh, really doing quite well as a field back then, it was a, it was a tremendous field and it still is, but especially then in, in the eighties, um, you know, I grew up, we'd spend summers, at the Aspen center for physics. We weren't wealthy. We didn't go to Aspen cause we had money. We went to Aspen cause there was this center for physics that, um, a couple Nobels put together. And so I grew up running around playing there, uh, as a kid, but I got to know, you know, some of the greats. And if any of your listeners are, are physics buffs, you know, um, they'll recognize these names. Most people probably won't, but you know, Peter Kaus, Murray Gilman, who discovered the quark, which is one of the fundamental particles. Were they at the house? Or were these, this was at the Institute? They were at the Institute, but we'd have these people over for dinner all the time. Okay. So, so what was it like? Yeah. What was the dinner table like? Yeah. So that's a, that's a good question. So, you know, what was interesting is my dad, um, people would talk about physics, but it was, it was different back then. You know, people didn't really talk about work at the dinner table. They would talk about the people they worked with. There's, you know, one thing that people don't know about scientists, there's, there's a tremendous amount of rumor and gossip in science about the people, about their personal lives. Uh, people, people set the work and the context of the work in, um, in the nest of, you know, how people's kids and families are doing. Um, and so, you know, I knew these physics, these luminaries of physics, right? Most of the people who I, I named off, you know, Peter Kaus, the, the Gell-Mann, Feynman, these people, I and mean, they had Nobel Prizes. Some of them had multiple Nobel Prizes. And I didn't really think much of it. But what I did take note of was I, I, I knew they had some importance, but um, 
be just because of the way that, you know, I would be told, you know, someone's coming over for dinner and, you know, he invented the laser or something like that. I didn't really, I just want to shoot things with lasers, right? Uh-huh. I was a kid. I just wanted to shoot, blow things up with lasers. I didn't want to, yeah, I didn't understand the physics. Did you act differently because somebody of note was coming over? Not one bit. Not one bit. And your, and your family didn't either. Mom and dad didn't act differently. They were the same, whether it was, uh, the, neighbor across the street or it was somebody that was coming from the mountaintop? Uh, um, you know, my dad always had tremendous reverence for people's discoveries and status. Uh, my mom, based on her upbringing, which was more humble than my dad's, um, had kind of more of a broad appreciation of, from, of people from different walks of life. Actually, her dad was a scientist also, but he was a, you know, he's a veteran in World War II. He boxed in the army. He was kind of a blue collar guy, like tremendously strong, fit guy, having never touched a weight, you know, one of those just from having worked hard all his life. Um, and he actually became a biochemist on the GI Bill after World War II. Um, and so, and he was a you know professor at Cornell and, and this kind of thing, but but more of a kind of a blue collar mentality that every you know everyone's equivalent. And my dad um, was more uh, he would cue me to you know we have someone coming over for dinner. He's very important, but I never treated anyone differently or behaved any differently. And actually to this day, I don't know maybe some of my colleagues will get upset with it. I you know my downstairs neighbor has a Nobel Prize. His dad has a Nobel Prize. He's a super nice guy. Um, he has a wonderful family. You know, none of it really impacts me. I, I don't, um, you know, we're all flesh and bones and uh, this is the craft and what people have dedicated their, themselves to. But I don't have, um, I'm not starstruck. Um, I don't, I don't get um, dazzled by people's status. I, I certainly have admiration for what people accomplish, but I think it conditioned me to be uh, a little bit sensitized to the fact that um, you know, if people have amazing accomplishments, whether or not they're in science or anything else, um, they're still subject to the same standards. And that's where some of the, the stories about people's lives kind of balance things out. Because um, oftentimes I would hear, you know, I was a kid, I'd, I'd listen in on what my parents were saying and they'd say things about people's, um, they weren't gossipy, but they'd, you know, they'd say, oh, you know, it's a shame that, you know, so-and-so's, uh, they split up or their kid is having problems. And so what I realized, also because I grew up in Palo Alto, I knew, I was friends with a lot of the kids of Stanford professors, some of whom, and I'm not going to name names, some of whom um, were luminaries in these other fields, right? Non-physics fields, psychology and economics and all these, and, and I knew their kids. And so I knew whether or not their families were happy well-structured, productive families. I also knew a lot of people who had very functional careers whose kids were real, were a mess because of um, neglect or from being pushed too hard. And so, you know, I, I integrated all that, I, I, I like to think. And so from about birth until about age, I would say about 11 or 12, I had this very magical childhood of playing with my friends, learning about science. My dad and I would, would, we really did this. We would take walks together and he would explain how different elements in the, in the physical universe work. And I told him I wanted to understand how things work. He said, you, you should think about studying the brain. I said, well, that's what I'll do. And so I was sort of born into it in that sense. But, um, to be honest, uh, as long as we're being open here, the, uh, you know, right about age 12, 13, my parents split up and, um, I love my parents. They did the best they could with what they had and they're wonderful people, but it was a very, very high conflict situation. 
and my dad moved away. My mom was experiencing her own struggles. And very quickly, I stopped, I basically stopped paying attention in school. Um, I also got very excited. It wasn't a rebellious thing. I got very excited about the sort of skateboarding, punk rock culture and community. I've, I've always liked having a lot of male friends that liked adventures. If you were to label the first 12 years as like a chapter in your life, would you split that up into two or would that be one chapter? Yeah, I would just call it all before puberty. <laughs> and, and, and I'd call it before puberty and before um, my parents split, which yeah. basically was sort of, it was like there was kindling there, uh -huh. but then puberty and their separation was like the fire. And then let's just be fair. It was like get, throwing gasoline on that fire because suddenly, you know, my body was changing. My mind was changing. I mean, we, we forget sometimes that puberty is the single fastest aging event in our entire life. And it's the single greatest neuroplasticity event, meaning condensed into the shortest amount of time. Things look different. They, they sound different. Our perceptions of what, what things mean is completely different before and after puberty. We're treated differently. So I, I went from being a very innocent, um, adventurous and curious kid with a lot of structure to a, um, soon to be not so innocent, um, adventurous and curious. I was an adolescent. I wasn't even a young man. You can even say that. Yeah. I was adolescent with essentially no structure. Um, I, I, I leaned hard into communities that, um, where there was no structure and, and I have to say it wasn't, and there was a lot happening there and I'm happy to get into it if, if you want. And, um, but from about, I would say from about 13 or 14 until I went off to college, I was basically in a free fall. You know, I, I fortunately was never into drugs or alcohol. It just wasn't my thing. I drank a little bit. I, you know, I experimented a little bit, but that just wasn't my thing. Looking back, what were you trying to sort out? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think I was just trying to put some sense of order on things. Things were so chaotic. Um, it's kind of ironic. My, my dad was, um, he studied chaos. He was one of the founders of chaos theory. There's a book chaos by Jim Glick, who's a you know, New York times reporter and talks about some of this. Um, and my, my life was just at that point was just, it was just chaos. It was like, there was no structure, you know, what used to be, um, meals together at the dinner table, what used to be, um, weekend, you know, summers in, uh, at the Aspen center for physics, what, you know, all that was basically that it would just, it just didn't exist anymore. My house was, was empty a lot of the time. If your dad was in this conversation, would he say, he'd say, Andrew, chaos is relative to this chaotic time, but you, now you're an adult. What would he say about the chaos you were, you were having? You know, he and I have had a lot of conversations uh, about that time. And I think, you know, I think he, he has, um, a lot of regret. Um, and I think, you know, he, yeah, I think he has a lot of regret. I think he, he wanted order. I mean, my, my dad is a, um, is a, just as is my mom, a, a wonderful human being. He, he wanted order and he wanted it for me, but I think he had to create it for himself first. And I, I think that's just sometimes how it goes. I mean, it sounds very dark, but of course, as, as you probably know, right, that there are so many gifts in having to go figure things out for myself. 
Finding Mastery is brought to you by Apollo Neuro. I am really excited about what Apollo Neuro is building. If you haven't had the chance yet, I highly recommend that you go check out the conversation I had with our co-founder, Dr. David Rabin, on the podcast. It is well worth a listen. Unlike traditional wearables that simply track your biometrics, Apollo is doing it totally differently. Apollo Neuro is designed to actively improve your health by enhancing sleep, relaxation, energy, and focus. So how's it work? Developed by neuroscientists and physicians, Apollo delivers these soothing little vibrations. They call them Apollo vibes that are like music your body can feel. More rapid vibrations help to improve your energy and focus, while the slower vibrations help to promote rest and digest in your body. And the best part for me, they're grounded in good science. Apollo has been tested by thousands of users in clinical and real world trials. I would love for you to give it a go. It's making a meaningful difference in my life. And because you're listening to this podcast, you can receive an exclusive 15% off an Apollo wearable. Just head to Apollo Neuro dot com slash finding mastery and use the code finding mastery at checkout. This is an exclusive offer. It's only for us here at finding mastery. So be sure to use the code at checkout. Again, that's Apollo, A-P-O-L-L-O, Apollo Neuro, N-E-U-R-O, Apollo Neuro.com slash finding mastery or use the code finding mastery at checkout for 15% off your purchase. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Cured. If there's one big rock to get into the container when it comes to dialing in your wellness, one thing that stands out among the rest is sleep. Whether it be improved physical health, mental health, performance, creativity, quality sleep is the gift that keeps on giving. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with the science that supports that. And if you're struggling with sleep or you just want to dial it in a bit further, Cured's Zen formula just might be a great solution for you. Zen is a nootropic that is formulated by Cure's very own in-house clinical herbalist, and it contains a blend of reishi mushroom, ashwagandha, chamomile, passionflower, and broad-spectrum CBD. That is a powerhouse combination. Zen could be a great little addition to your bedtime routine. They recommend taking it about 45 minutes before hopping into bed to let the reishi and ashwagandha and chamomile and the CBD do their thing. So right now, because you're listening to this podcast, Cured is hooking you up with a great offer. You can try Zen for 20% off when you visit curednutrition.com slash findingmastery and you use the code findingmastery at checkout. That's Cured, C-U-R-E-D, Cured, nutrition.com slash findingmastery and enter the code findingmastery at checkout to save 20%. What did you lose? What did you gain during that 12 to 18 year, you know, on both sides? What'd you lose? What'd you gain? The easiest structure, but like right below that, what did you lose? Yeah. What I lost was, um, a scent, a real deep sense of, of safety, you know, of knowing that, um, there was a place to return to that was, you know, where there was food, where it was warm, where I could count on, on a stable pillar. What I gained was, you know, outsized that, uh, you know, a thousandfold. Uh, what I gained was, first of all, growing up in Palo Alto, 
even though I wasn't one of the, you know, we weren't one of the, the wealthy families and we weren't poor, poor, but you know, we were sort of middle-class, right? Um, I wasn't really exposed to kids that didn't have much at all and that were really kind of free and wild. And I formed a lot of friendships with people in San Jose and San Francisco, mainly through a skateboard community, um, who they didn't go to school cause why should they, right? They were, a lot of them went on to have great careers as skateboarders or started skateboard companies. A lot of them ended up dead or in jail, frankly, you know, so it really depended, but I got to see that there was this whole other way that people were going through life because they were born into families where there was no structure from day one. So uh, it gave me an appreciation for what I did have a deep appreciation I, that I like to think has continued to grow. It gave me a sensitivity to the fact that as much as we, including myself, sometimes look at others and think, well, they just need to, you know, take responsibility, take initiative. People are st starting at di from different places often. And I also realized that there's a, there are adventures to be had and not all of them are destructive. And that sometimes the best thing you can do is just, you know, and kids don't run away from home, but the, sometimes the best thing you can do is just get in a van or a car with a bunch of your friends and, and go find that adventure. And there were, you know, too many adventures to list off, but I realized that it, adventure is really, um, it's, it's the, it's the cornerstone of a really good life and you don't have to travel to do it, but you know, you, you can have it in your mind. You can have it in books. You can have it in a laboratory, but there's always a bigger and better adventure to be had. And I think that those years were, um, they were definitely scary. I saw some disturbing things. I, I, you know, got involved with people that I just shouldn't have, but, um, for a kid that age, you know, without the filters to make sense of what I was, um, being exposed to. But, you know, when, when I came away from that, I had all these questions that eventually I, I took to my scientific career questions about, you know, why do some kids take a sip of alcohol and become alcoholics? Whereas I didn't feel that. And why do some people go down the path of depression and suicide, um, violence and others just focus on their, their sport or their craft. You know, it, it, it was clear to me in those years that people were showing up with different genetic makeups, different propensities for success. I mean, I saw some kids that came into that world with nothing, with that truly had nothing. And, and some of them had, you know, nothing except an abusive parent, um, drug addiction in the house. And, I don't want to name names here because I'd want to check with them first, but that went on to have and continue to have tremendous careers in, in skateboarding and in music and in, in clothing companies that have done things that, you know, by all accounts uh, are incredible. And I should point out nowadays, it's a relief to see they have healthy families of their own, you know, that they're not just rolling in money. They're, they're doing well in a number of different dimensions in life. So those years, it's funny. I don't think about those years much anymore, but um, they're cemented it around my house in different little places. I have some old magazine covers framed and things like that of things that still draw memories up and, you know, but from 19 on, it was all about science and it was only in recent years, I would say in the last decade or so that I've kind of returned to adventures outside of science and tried to merge those with my science and we get into that later if you want. But, um, but yeah, that many, many, many more gifts 
than scars or scrapes, but um, there were definitely some there were definitely some dark days and some dark nights where I just wasn't sure what was going to happen to me. I think I just had no idea. Not everyone comes through it. Uh, you and I both grew up in action sports, and you know the interesting thing about action sports. I don't know if you vibe with this. Is that uh, it is a approach to life to get on the edge. And it's on the edge is where you learn the most, but it's also where you get the, you know, some of the deepest scars. Like I've got a pretty heavy scar across my back from like just being right on the edge and, you know, uh, going too fast, wheels wash out and I was asphalt and skin all over the place. And so I've got some of those experiences and, um, Part of that that I was going to get to, uh, I took a little left turn on us right there, but part of it is that um, you're ra- I was around older people because those are the guys and you know, mostly guys in my, my group. Those are the guys that were doing the things that were harder and more aggressive right. and like they were getting like uh, – they were the progressive ones. And then uh, there's some stuff that comes with that, you know, seeing and feeling things that um, were above my age grade. And so I don't know if you had that same thing and you just learn a lot. And I'll tell you, like I grew up at a spot called burnout beach and it, it, it has earned its name. And I feel fortunate to, to still love what I've learned there and have been able to not be a burnout. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I think that we've got some similar appreciations for, um, yeah, I don't know if it's a dark side so much as it is like a different counterculture, off-access, progressive at all cost approach to, um, you know, tribal individuation. Yeah. Well, what's, I want to I want to just make sure I point out one thing, uh, which is that like at that age, especially from about fourteen to nineteen, I, I want to point this out in case any of those people listen. I sucked. I mean, like honestly, I my body wasn't ready. I didn't, I would, I had hit puberty at about 14, but I hadn't developed. I w- my body wasn't strong. And so one of the big frustrations for me is I, I just wasn't very good. I just didn't have the, the, the kind of physical ability that I wanted to be able to pour myself into a physical pursuit. L- you know, m- later when I discovered, and it was because of a high school football coach, even though I never played football, it was because of a high school football coach that turned me on to weightlifting and martial arts that and running, I ran cross country, got into weightlifting, tie boxing, that kind of thing, that I realized that I had some control over how strong I would get, how resilient I could get. You know, I was getting injured a lot skateboarding, but, you know, so I wasn't one of the good ones, but I certainly got to witness a lot of the greats um, in their early days. You mentioned that the age discrepancies, you know, skateboarding and surfing, um, BMX and some of these other um, action sports, and there, there are others, of course, um, are unique in that you've got kids that are, you know, often eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, hanging out with, with grown men, basically. And and now I know, I realize that more um, girls and, and women do this as well, but are involved in those sports, but it is unusual in that way. You know, it's not a league sport in the, in the same way. And, and so you're getting an education in everything. The one big gift that I just realized is that I'm comfortable in pretty much any environment. I'm comfortable with that crowd. I'm comfortable with scientists. I, uh, I, I feel comfortable in most any um, group. Uh, you know, we're an odd species that we can diversify our behavior so much. Other species don't do that, but humans do that. And so I'm, I'm comfortable in a variety of settings and, um, and not as, as a consequence, you know, not much 
you know, I, I don't live in a lot of fear, uh, at least not physical fear. Right. I mean, of course I have fears. I'm a human being, but, um, so yeah, so many gifts and, and, and thank you for asking about that time. I, I rarely think about it. Um, but when I do, I'm, I'm filled with gratitude. I, I second that note. Like for me, I am incredible. I don't know how things happen, you know, like the serendipity nature of things, but like, I'm so grateful that I am practiced at scaring myself. I am practiced at committing to action and knowing how to pull away from action when it's way too dangerous. But I'm so thankful that my parents created a structure where they're like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And you know, I don't know if I have that, <laughs> that approach to, with my son, you know, yeah, yeah, go ahead. But I, I wanted to, in this book that I'm writing, um, I wanted to have a chapter called making a case for broken bones. And it was a response to, you know, the Zamboni parenting, you know, kind of smoothing everything out. So kids will have this nice sliding, you know, skate in life. And I want to say now, like there's a case to falling out of trees and breaking bones and, you know, figuring out how to get wheel wobbles on your bike or your skateboard. And do I bail or do I stay committed? You know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you stay committed, you just might make it. And if you bail, you know, you might have your chin rubbed up against asphalt. And so I love that. And I'm incredibly grateful too. And I don't want us to get too lost in that because I think you and I could vibe there forever. I want to get into your insights as, um, you know, a leading scientist in this space of neuroscience, like, you know, you've got some deep and rich insights and I'm actually kind of confused about why you went from hardcore razor's edge, um, real consequence sport with low culture into a VR lab. Like it's the, you know, from the dirt yeah. to the sterilization like that, that actually is a leap that I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. So it was, it was, a it was a little bit, um, more gradual than that. So basically <laughs> yeah, and, and course, I'll, yeah. I'll keep this, <laughs> I'll keep this portion of the story, um, relatively quick for your listeners and, um, in terms of personal parts so we can get into the science, but you know, so I, I followed a high school girlfriend who was essentially my, my family, right? She, she was the one person I wanted to be in contact with besides my other, you know, my community of male friends. I followed her off to school. Um, and when I would, went off to, uh, somehow I got in, D don't ask me how I got in. I, that, I, I somehow managed to take the SAT and, and I got accepted. People I run into nowadays that I knew in high school are, are still somewhat in disbelief because I, I really wasn't present in high school. And, <laughs> and for any kids or parents listening, um, you know, the truth is that, you know, at least in the United States, that there is, there are a number of opportunities for second chances, but, but those, the window for those second chances really does taper off with time. So, um, you know, I, I caught it right in time. You know, I, I went off to college. Uh, I took a, a class in, in biopsychology because back then there wasn't a field called neuroscience. It was um, what we now call neuroscience was fractured into neurochemistry and neurogenetics and psychology and biopsychology. And now it's this unified naming thing we call neuroscience. But I took a course that got me really excited about thermal regulation, how we regulate body temperature, as well as um, addiction. I was really interested in the biology of addiction. Actually, my senior project was looking at how MDMA ecstasy leads to shifts in body temperature. Um, and back then, you know, there was a big rave culture. I had never been to a rave. I'd never done MDMA. I was just, I thought it was a cool project. So that's what I did for my um, senior thesis. And why, why did people overheat? What's the short narrative there? 
Yeah, the short narrative actually reveals something fundamental about uh, perception, which is that there are sensors in our skin which detect temperature, both cold and hot. Uh, and there are also there is also a brain area in the hypothalamus that integrates that information and essentially compares changes in temperature over time to internal body temperature. So, so it's constantly analyzing how quickly things are changing. This is why it's much easier to just get into cold water all at once than to go in gradually. Every step is another a painful increment of the same size. It is really much easier to just get in all the way. Um, the opposite is true for hot water, by the way. Um, and as a protective mechanism, you can imagine why, why that might be. You have to get into it. Water has to be very, very cold and you have to stay in it for quite a while before it's damaging. Whereas hot water, it's, it can be instantaneous. So, um, there's a hypothalamic area that, uh, air, hypothalamus just being this primitive brain area over the roof of your mouth, um, that regulates basic functions like, you know, feeding appetite temperature and sex behavior and that kind of thing. So, um, it's part of the circuits that do that. And so you know, I was just very interested in, um, why people were dying from taking MDMA and it turned out they weren't dying from the MDMA itself, although there are, uh, rare cases of cardiac arrest, but they were dying from overheating. And so the, and so I was just interested in thermal regulation. So that was the drug that we decided to study. Uh, so it was prompted by a real world phenomenon, but I was just interested in the biology. But in my freshman year, I, I, got, I sort of attached myself to this professor who was talking about that stuff. He was talking about depression. He was talking about all this psychological stuff that I was curious about, like depression. I had had a friend commit suicide. I had a friend who went schizophrenic. Um, and he was telling me about neurochemicals and he was telling me about circuits in the brain and neurons. And he was giving me really good, solid explanations for this stuff, as well as some hope that if we could understand these mechanisms, we might be able to help relieve some suffering. And uh, he was a remarkable human being, at both for his abilities to to teach and for his ability to teach really complex material, but embedded in kind of real world, uh, you know, stories. And his name was Harry Carlisle and he was a, a favorite teacher of many students. Um, a lot of people actually in the neuroscience community that I know took classes from him back when, uh, and so I just fell in love with it and I loved working in his lab and he was a little bit of a punk rocker. He used to smoke cigarettes. You could never do this nowadays. He used to smoke cigarettes in the lab. He was a chain smoker and he used to hang his head out the window or do it in the fume hood so that he wouldn't get caught. And they were all, and the, the, the department admins were always yelling at him and he just totally ignored it. And I just thought this guy was like the coolest guy ever. Right. I mean, he, he drove a little black pickup truck and he had a couple kids and he, um, that seemed happy and he ran a lab and we did experiments and we published papers and he taught lectures and he, um, and he had a really nice wife who worked over in the, the you know, counseling and career center. She's a head of psychology, um, and, you know, did counseling for the students. And I just thought, you know, that's the life for me. I want to do this. And so I made the decision, I'm going to get a PhD. I'm going to become a professor and I want to study anything and everything about the brain. Um, but I started off in developmental neurobiology, how the brain develops, how sperm and egg meet. Well, we know what happens before that, but after they meet, um, how you go from a fertilized egg to nine months later, a, a creature that is prepared to learn what it needs to know to have a life. You're the first person I heard describe the hypothalamus being above the roof of your mouth. And 
So that makes sense though, because of the embryonic fold around the palate is, yep. um, is that why you talk about it that way? Yeah. So I just like, I want to orient people. Yeah. So right above the roof of your mouth, you right. got these two little glands that look like little grapes that the pituitary that make all the hormones that signal to the testes if you're male and you, to the ovaries if you're female, whether or not to make testosterone or estrogen respectively. I mean, sexes make both, but, um, you know, in different ratios, of course, um, men have more testosterone generally and women have more estrogen. So uh, right above there is the hypothalamus and, and it sits right at the midline. And so it's a little hard to, um, envision this, uh, in a all audio podcast, but basically we all start off as a, as a little sheet of cells that then turns into a tube. Um, I like to think of it, it kind of looks like a churro, you know, those like those donuts, the, those little hollow donuts. Um, and then one end of that tube gets thicker and that's going to be your brain. And then the end of that tube stays thin and that's your spinal cord. And so in order to go from a sheet of cells to a tube, you have to take that sheet and pull up the, the sides like a sheet of paper and seal them at the top or the bottom. And it actually gets sealed at the top. So along the bottom, along the, 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 that bottom fold that's running just along the roof of your mouth. And that's where the more primitive brain areas tend to reside areas like the hypothalamus, not far off is the amygdala. Um, I wish I, I had a, a brain diagram here cause I teach neuroanatomy to medical students at Stanford, but, um, and there I can point to things and, and, and show you these things. But, um, but we basically all start off as a, as a fertilized egg that goes to that becomes a sheet of cells that becomes a tube. And then we're basically a tube. Um, and that tube starts in your fore, at your forebrain and goes all the way to the, the back of your spinal cord. Finding Mastery is brought to you by AG1. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know what a big supporter I am of AG1. And it's almost been for a decade now. So I love what they're doing. I, it's something I drink just about every day. And part of their marketing slogan is that it's a nutritional insurance program. And like, I just, I love that. That's the way it feels for me. And that's because each serving of AG1 delivers a dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and so much more. It is a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. I like to take it first thing in the morning, which is also recommended for optimal nutrient absorption. And so what I do is I just fill up my shaker, add some cold water, a scoop of AG1, and a little squeeze of lemon. I shake it up and I'm ready to go. Or if I'm in a rush or you know, I'm, I'm ripping and running on the road, I just grab an AG1 travel pack to take with me. I feel great after drinking it, not only because of the nutritional insurance idea, but there's just a, there's a sustenance that happens when I drink it. And I love recommending it to friends and family because I know AG1 is formulated with science-informed rigor and the highest quality in mind. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily. And that's why I've loved partnering with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, I want to encourage you to give AG1 a try and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and also get five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash findingmastery. Again, that's drinkag1.com slash findingmastery. Finding Mastery is brought to you by AquaTrue. We all know how important hydration is to performance and recovery and well-being, but it's not just about how much you drink. The quality of your water plays a big role. 
And if you're like me and you don't fully trust tap water, and I think for good reason, research by the Environmental Working Group has shown that three out of four homes in the U.S. have harmful contaminants in tap water. That's why I'm really excited to introduce AquaTrue. Their purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters. It's incredible. I can literally taste the difference in my water. Plus, the filters are affordable and long-lasting. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water. That adds up to less than three cents per bottle. It feels great to know that all at once, I'm saving money, getting the highest quality water for the Finding Mastery team, and helping make a positive impact on the environment by eliminating single-use plastics all the way around. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, and it even makes a great gift. And right now, because you're a Finding Mastery listener, you receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. So just go to AquaTrue.com. You spell it A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code FINDINGMASTERY at checkout. Again, that's AquaTrue.com. Enter the Finding Mastery code at checkout to receive 20% off any purifier that you buy there. You know, Andrew, what, what I was working, sometimes I get out there and meeting people and, you know, p- folks that are on the frontier in their science. And sometimes it's really amazing. And sometimes it's a little wacky. And uh, I, I, I like all of it. You know, I really do have an appetite for all of it. But there was a gentleman that I came across that was 100% convinced that the key to flow state is palate massaging and restructuring. I was like, what? And so I, you know, I took a deep dive with them. Like, what, what are we doing here? Because immediately I was like, ooh, kind of the first fold. Wait a minute. And so, you know, I actually did some of the work and I had him up there massaging my palate and I'm like, oh God, this is awful. And so um, it's, it is really interesting though. You know, uh, he was talking about realignment of jaw and placement of restructuring the teeth and massaging palate and this, that, and the other. And it was fascinating. It was just a bit too... Mm, too far out for like a first step. And so I'd love to hear just a, a quick thought on that. Yeah. And, um, and it might offer a good tra- transition point to, um, to something that we know for sure uh, that I think there are solid data to support. So, I mean, I, I want to be, I want to be respectful of all those that are interested in the brain and how it works. But you know, that there, you've got standard science, you've got um, biotech, You've got the sort of fields of, let's call it biohacking, alternative health, you know, Ayurveda, a lot of different sectors of that, that are all scientific in the sense that they're asking questions and they're developing practices and, um, and so forth. There are a number of areas, and, and I have friends in some of these communities that, um, that take something like, I don't want to be disparaging of whoever this, this person is, so, but that they will take something like that a brain structure is nearby another structure and, and assume that, that that means that they have a, a relationship. And, you know, like for instance, we know that every cell in the body critically requires light information. It requires information about time of day. And in fact, also about time of year. And that information is conveyed via the only two pieces of the brain that are outside the skull. And those are your retinas your eyes. At the back of your eyes are two little pieces of brain and they're not connected to the brain. They are actually part of the central nervous system. Andrew, I love your pivot. 
It's so good. Yeah, no, I'm just appreciating the art of the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to weave back to this. You know, I get asked a lot about, well, what about light up the nose? Or what about light behind the knee? First of all, the the, the famous study about that showed light behind the knee could shift circadian rhythms. That that paper was retracted by the authors because it, it was faulty experimental design. People were getting light exposure to the eyes. You know, unless you're a lizard or a snake, you don't have holes in your skull that allow light directly in. You have to get light information to all the cells of your body t- by viewing it with these two pieces of your brain that sit outside your skull that we call the neural retina, which, or we could just call them the eyes. And I, I don't doubt that if people put red lights or other colored lights up their nose or in their ears that they're going to see some effects. But the, um, And there's some papers, although frankly, I'll just be honest, that the, pa- the papers that I've seen are, are in less than stellar journals. Most often they're in pay-to-play journals. You know, not all journals are made equally. Some journals, all you have to do is pay and they'll publish. That's not really high stringency. So publish to me is, is not, it's a prerequisite, but it's not, doesn't get you all the way. There's a, there's a difference between nature and a lot of the others, which you've been published there or your lab has been published in nature. I, I'm not sure. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've been fortunate to have published there several times, science several times, but the, and there are other qu- high quality journals. It's yeah. just that the, the joke I always make is if, if I get into a fight in the parking lot at the UFC, I'm not going to tell people I fought at the UFC, right? So there's a difference. <laughs> Good man. So, so, so there are, there are effects of light. I want to, but I, but I want to, um, I want to leverage your point of, that this person brought up because there are effects of light on other cells of the body besides the eyes. But what we know for sure is that the eyes are transmitting all that light information to the brain. And then it's being transmitted to the rest of the body through hormone signals and neural signals, meaning electrical signals, which is the language of neurons. So, and, and it's an important one because fundamentally we think of the eyes as for seeing, for seeing objects where they move, et cetera. But that's actually a late stage evolution of what eyes were designed for. Eyes were designed first and foremost to set the overall arousal state, the alertness or the sleepiness of the rest of the nervous system. Think about it. Um, how does your brain know when to be awake or when to be asleep? Well, it knows based on when the sun is out or when the sun is down. We're a diurnal species. We're not a nocturnal species. And so all every cell in our body has a 24-hour clock. If you take out a cell from your liver and put it in a dish, it will have a, a rhythm in activity, a rhythm in metabolism that's t- a 24-hour rhythm or very close to it, so-called circadian rhythm. And so the eyes are responsible for instructing the brain, and then the brain is responsible for instructing all the cells of the rest of the body when to do their respective jobs. Just like at a factory, not all the cells are gonna do the same things at the same times, but they need to know when to do what they need to do. So there are a lot of questions about how to access the nervous system and control the nervous system. And I do wanna emphasize, I think that's a valid pursuit to ask that question. But when we think about sensation, meaning physical events in the world around us, light, sound, touch and how those can be used to change our nervous system or control our biological functions, including immune system and including digestion and including uh, emotions um, at a very different level. We need to think about what the nervous system was designed for. And the eyes were really designed first and foremost to set this overall level of arousal. And then later cells were added to the eye that allowed us to see dark versus light. 
in a, and consciously perceive that. Then it was edges and then it was moving edges. Then much, much later, it was color. It was the addition of a, what we call a third cone photopigment, which is just geek speak for we got m the ability to perceive more colors. Dogs don't see red the way we see them. They see things in kind of orangish green. We see reds versus orange versus greens very differently because we're working with more paints in the system, so to speak. So the eyes are fundamentally the most powerful driver of what we think, what we feel, and ultimately what we can do because they set the basic level of alertness or sleepiness and they do it not just at a, at a low subconscious level. There are also ways in which the eyes are adjusting these things on very fast time scales and that impact our health on very fast time scales. And a lot of this leads into fairly actionable um, items. It's a lot of what my lab works on. So just to really quickly, I mean, I went from developmental neurobiology, the visual system. So how the, the eyes wire up to the rest of the brain and and so forth, and then eventually transition to regeneration and repair of that system, which is something my lab still works on um, quite extensively, things like glaucoma, neurofibromatosis, diseases where vision is depleted, trying to cure blindness essentially in humans and in animal models. And, and then we eventually realized that vision has such a powerful effect on how we feel at a basic level and has such a tremendous capacity to shift how we feel and how we perform cognitively and behaviorally that we realized that we had to study how vision drives stress, how vision drives calm, how vision drives the ability to move through complex environments or high stress environments. And so that's led me into a number of different worlds, including work with, um, you know, various sectors of the, of the military, very fortunate to work with, with those, those groups because they're, they're tremendous in, uh, teams and individuals, as well as do a little bit of work with athletes, but, but mainly that those groups and really trying to understand how vision and how we see the world, how we view the world drives our experience of life, both internally and in terms of what we can do externally. So how do you separate perception and meaning from what we see, like the perception of what we're seeing and putting meaning to it, uh, to the actual just kind of neurostructural um, impact from the sensory input that's taking place. And I'm, I'm, I don't yeah. know if I'm being clunky around this, but it's like there's... No, no, it's, a, it's, it's the question. It's an okay. excellent question. It's, it's, yeah, you're being very, very clear. So, so the visual system um, breaks up so photons are just light energy and they're floating around all over. And for people who have a hard time envisioning what light energy is, it's just light. Let's just think light and different colors are different wavelengths of light. But let's just set all that aside. Basically what the, what the retina does what this amazing three cell thick, three cell layers, thick structure. It's about as, about as thick as a credit card lines, the back of your eye. And this is an amazing structure. It basically takes light information in the world and it, separates it out into contrast and motion and direction of motion and eventually color and other things like that. All that is information is sent into the brain and then the brain un unpacks all that and makes some, some very basic analyses. It says, okay, first of all, is it a dark edge or a light edge? Is it moving? Where is it moving? Is it moving up? Is it moving down? Is it moving to the right? Is it moving to the left? This kind of thing. Is it getting bigger? Or is it getting smaller? It then compares that 
whether or not it's getting bigger or getting smaller to where, whether or not you're moving forward or backward or to either side, you know, it evaluates self motion. Cause if I walk down the street, things are moving on my retina, but I know because I'm moving at a certain rate that it's because I'm moving. It's not because the street is, the buildings aren't sliding past me. I'm sliding past the buildings, so to speak. Are you giving this in order? Is it sensory motor strip first or is this the fast gate into the hypothalamus and then cognition? Like I thought there was ah, okay. three, three gates, but yeah. there might so, only be two. Yeah. So, so there are slow events that the visual system controls, like telling, when you look at light outside during the day, you're, you're, your brain is being informed about that and is sending hormonal signals like cortisol and will eventually melatonin. You're, it's controlling the timing of cortisol and melatonin to decide when you'll be awake and when you'll be asleep. So there's some slow events, some very, very slow events, but that are controlling your overall level of alertness and sleepiness. I know, you know, it's 3.30 in the afternoon right now. I feel fundamentally different at 3.30 in the afternoon than I do at 3.30 in the morning. Even if I were nocturnal, it would be fundamentally different. Now, those are slow events. Then there are faster events, like how fast things are moving through our environment. And so the, the basic analysis of the visual system is try not to fall off high objects or cliffs, okay? So depth perception is very important. Try not to let things that are moving that are also getting larger come straight at you, right? These are just primitive survival mechanisms. These, those signals are routed to areas of the brain that are very fast and very reflexive. There's actually a phenomenon called blind sight where people who are completely blind, pattern blind, because of damage to an area of the brain that controls high level pattern vision, which I'll talk about next. These people say, I can't see anything. And you say, well, I'm going to show you some moving dots. Okay. And tell me which direction they're moving. And they say, that's ridiculous. I can't see anything. I'm blind. And you show them moving dots and you say, just guess. And they guess far better than chance. So they're subconsciously detecting where these things are moving, okay? And it's kind of eerie to think about it. That's blind sight by definition. It's because there are, pa there are pathways from the eye to your brain that are completely subconscious, like the ones that are controlling your cortisol rhythms and melatonin rhythms. They're completely subconscious. You don't – they're operating at that level. Then there's a third category of visual signals, which are – faces and shapes that have meaning. So my dog's face has tremendous meaning for me. There's a famous paper published in Nature where they describe what was, in that case, which was actually, they call them Jennifer Aniston cells. There was literally a neuron in this one subject's brain that responded selectively to Jennifer Aniston's face. I can't remember if the subject was male or female. <laughs> they, they, but it was definitely Jennifer Aniston. So not everyone had a Jennifer Aniston cell, right? And there's, and this was a long debate in, because this gets back to kind of early psychological theories about whether or not we're a blank slate or whether or not everything's learned. It's both, it's nature and it's nurture, of course, right? So now attaching meaning to a face happens because of the visual signals get routed, not just to the areas of the brain that are involved in visual perception, but they get those, they get copied and sent off to areas of the brain that are involved in stress and arousal, the so-called limbic system, those things like the amygdala and hypothalamus. The signals also get routed off to areas of the, what's called the infratemporal cortex, deeper layers of cortex that are deeply involved in context and memory. So that if you see a red um, Ferrari in West Hollywood, you go, oh, another red Ferrari in West Hollywood. Whereas if you see one in West Oakland, where you know, I can say this because I'm a resident of Oakland, it might stick out a little bit more. It's a little bit more unusual just based on the demographics, right? Hmm. So 
there, you know, that kind of high level context has to do with memory, has to do with the general space you're in, recognition of your of your landscape, um, regularities in that landscape. So some of this stuff really is learned. And my scientific great grandparents, um, because they trained the people that trained me, are two guys named David Hubel and Torsten Weasel. They won the Nobel Prize basically for describing this, what's called a a hierarchical visual system, a, a visual system that works, that creates very complex perceptions with a ton of meaning. I mean, think about your child's face, or your dog's face, tremendous meaning for you and less for other people, but still more meaning than a picture of a brick for anybody. And they figured out that that, that complexity is built up from very simple basic elements. And those elements are what I mentioned before, dark versus light, edges, are the edges moving, et cetera, et cetera. If I have this right, there's there's the the protective mechanisms right from height and things coming at you, um, you know, at, at speed for safety reasons, and then there is um, the meaning making experiences, right? Like the you used your dog, but could we use um, and the red Ferrari? But could we also use like if the frontalis muscles are squinting or or compressed, like the little frown muscles? you know, that there's something there to pay attention to. And I, I can't get out of my head, the low road and the high road, right? The low road is the, is the fast information that's coming through the. Yeah. So the classic definition about this was sort of what and where pathways. So one pathway for looking at where things are and that's very fast. And indeed the neurons that carry that information are faster because they're bigger. So neurons that are big and fat can carry information really fast because they transmit, they're like big pipes carry more water much faster than small pipes. Got it. So um, that system is designed to be fast. It's the system that if you're biking or you're walking along the street and you blink and a bee hits your eyelid all of a sudden, but you don't remember actually seeing the bee coming at you. It just happens below your conscious detection. Those fast reflexes are mediated by that where pathway. The what pathway is slower. It's a, it's a slower, more analytic system. It's still very fast, mind you, but it's, it's definitely slower. And keep in mind that faces in particular for humans are an especially important stimulus because of the rich information they convey about other people's moods and safety, et cetera. And there, there's a woman at MIT and, and there are other labs as well, but it's really Nancy Canwisher's lab at MIT that pioneered this field over many decades and has done beautiful work showing that there, we really all have dedicated areas of our brain that are designed for the analysis of faces and facial expression. Old world primates like rhesus macaque monkeys and gorillas, they have these as well. Uh, animals like dogs and cats, who knows, um, probably for dog and cat faces or for dog and cat body postures, right? They might pay attention to other things, but they're probably more smell oriented than humans. But faces are a particularly important stimulus for humans for so many obvious reasons. And so we dedicate a lot of neural real estate to them. Okay. So this is a a pretty concrete question. And then I've got a more uh, nuanced or complicated question. It's going to get into like how to help people down-regulate some anxiousness, some fear, some paralysis stuff, you know, so that they can um, express themselves, you know, either thoughts or actions more eloquently. But the first part is, what is the faster system? Is it the ocular system or is it the, um, oh gosh, what's the, what's the word for smelling? Uh, Olfactory. Olfactory. Yeah. So which is the faster system? Ah, great. I'm glad you asked that because a lot of people get this one backwards. 
it's definitely the visual system. Well, you're, you're, the, you're, you're biased, aren't you? Well, no, it's, it, it is just by sheer speeds of <laughs> okay. transmission. So, it is, yeah. so there's, this, there, there's a fact, um, there's a fact, although I call it a kind of a factoid because it's more of a misleading fact. And, and so I'm trying to, you know, um, and no one really claims this fact, so it's, it's fine. I, mean, I don't feel like I'm insulting anyone. Um, the, the olfactory information. So, you know, if your retina is detecting photons, your, your nose, you've got neurons up your nose. Believe it or not, they live there. They're olfactory neurons for, for smell. They detect volatile chemicals that are floating around in the environment. So they're, you know, if you smell a nice steak or cookies baking or something, those molecules and chemicals are floating in the air, and you're smelling them. And you've got re receptors that detect different odors, and that that information is conveyed to an area of the brain we call the cortex, although it's a more primitive area of the cortex than the visual cortex. Um, cortex is just the outer shell. Um, but it is true that smell information bypasses some intermediate stages of processing. However, the neurons that carry that information transmit it slowly. So just because they go through fewer stations doesn't mean it arrives at its location first, nor does it mean that the information is used quickly. Now, that's true for humans. You know, a scent hound is mainly reliant on, as the name suggests, scent in order to navigate its environment. A guy who, he's no longer a, a faculty member at Berkeley. Um, he did great work there. It's just that he got recruited away to another university named Noam Sobel, had undergraduates at Berkeley wear these, um, these outfits, basically, where their eyes and um, and touch and hearing were completely blacked out. You know, it's essentially putting them in sensory deprivation and had them navigate scent trails using their nose like a dog would. And, you know, humans can do that if they're forced to rely on scent. But typically we don't rely on smell too much. We've given up a lot of our um, sort of the expression of certain genes for different olfactory receptors. In, or, in other words, we've given up a sensitivity and a complexity of odor sensing in favor of sensitivity and complexity of visual sensing. And some animals got more and better hearing. You know, some humans are more tuned into auditory stuff and have more of an ear for music. Some people do have a great sense of smell and some people have a poor sense of smell. But vision is by far the dominant sense. And I can say that not because we work on it, but because 40% of the human brain is involved in vision in some way or another. And you can't say that for the other senses. Now, it's all important, but if you really, if you, most people, if they had to choose, would give up hearing before they'd give up vision. If a person who doesn't have vision is strongly dependent on, um, you either outsource that vision to an animal or to a machine or, uh, or a cane, you know, you, or you have them work with a cane. Whereas somebody who lacks hearing, um, it's still a great challenge, uh, of course, but um, many people can overcome that more easily, especially if they lose their hearing or smell, uh, hearing or, uh, or vision rather later in life. Mm, okay. So let's get into like fear and paralysis and anxiety, um, and courage, you know, and the responses to be able to, um, activate particular pathways to strengthen um, or downregulate the the fear and paralysis, and maybe upregulate or enhance 
um, the ability to be courageous and like, can you, can you walk through some, some of the neurobiology of it, but also, you know, get into some very practical things. And you know what I wanted to say? It was kind of stuck in the wings from I don't know, 20 minutes ago, but I was so caught in the, the narrative that you're doing is that I wanted to say at some point, like uh, about the eyes and, and sun is like, that's why when you travel, get outside to reset to the, you know, the, the rhythm of the world, right? So you get on that new time zone. And even if you don't, you know, my friend Samer Hattar, who's at, um, he's the head of the chronobiology unit at the National Institutes of Mental Health has, has shown that, you know, a lot of people are jet lagged at home. They're looking at screens at night and they're not getting enough photons or light in their eyes during the day and their severe mood disruptions. Uh, it actually, that, that pattern of behavior actually triggers a pro-depressive circuit. There's good evidence for that now. And in addition to that, it, it disrupt because of this area of the brain that's called the habenula, if anyone wants to look it up, that's driven by light. If the light comes in at the right time of day, you get an elevation in mood. If the light comes in at the wrong time of day, meaning at night, um, in the middle of the night in particular, between the hours of 11 p.m. and 4 a.m., you get activation of this pro-depressive circuit that's also signaled to the pancreas. So, so it throws off blood sugar regulation and metabolism and um, and can start creating some serious problems. Here, here's what I'll do in order to weave um, – to because now I think we've gone pretty deep into vision science and hopefully uh, your listeners will – would like to think they can appreciate now how complex and yet how organized their visual system is and how much it, it serves them at, at various levels, slow, fast. And in order to think about how vision and stress interact and what that means for things like courage, I'm just going to seed it with the, with the takeaways that we'll end with so that I make sure that um, I stay true to that. Um, so first of all, we will end with a tool that's far faster than breathing to calm yourself down when you're stressed. And that's completely covert. Like you don't have to step away. No one has to know you're doing it. This is actually something that a lot of people do either without who are high performers who don't realize it. Um, but it's something my lab has worked extensively on there. The other thing that we'll talk about are ways to get better at sleeping. Um, because everyone now knows that sleep is really important because, you know, Matt Walker w wrote this beautiful book and, you know, there are a number of things we can do to improve our sleep. You know, now everyone knows sleep is super important and we've n heard that for years, but I, you know, I think we can credit Matt for really making that, um, you know, as w widely known as it now is. I know he's been on here. Before. Yeah. He was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah I Matt's great. Yeah. He's, he's terrific. So, um, so we'll end with some, some actionable tools and then, and then the last one is one that, uh, and I'm friends with Stephen Kotler, so I don't, I don't want to, um, disrupt the use of the word, but I'm going to talk about optic flow, which is different than flow states as, as he refers to them. So I, I want to, um, distinguish between flow states and talk about optic flow and why that's a powerful modulator of internal states, which is basically saying you can really shift how you feel for the better by getting into specific kinds of optic flow, moving through space, not outer space, unless you're an astronaut, moving through space at particular rates and in particular ways. So we'll just start, and I won't give all the experimental evidence, but I'm gonna, t I'm gonna just briefly describe one study. In 2018, uh, a graduate student in my lab named Lindsay Soleil, who's uh, now a postdoc at Caltech, described in a Nature paper, she published this paper in Nature, so if you wanna read it, um, you can find it on our website. I'll give you a reference to it at the end. She discovered a, a neural pathway by which animals, and eventually we realized humans as well, react to visual threats. In this case, a large object coming at you really fast or at a mouse really fast, depending on the experiment. 
reactive visual threats in one of three ways. And it really illustrates that there are really only three responses to stress ever. One is you freeze, which doesn't have to be a paralytic freeze. It can be a pause. It can be a pause and reflect. It can be a pause and observe. Okay. doesn't have to be paralytic, you know, ready to dissolve into a puddle of tears type of freeze. Um, I'm showing how little I know about actual psychology. Um, <laughs> so freeze, then there's the flee response where you run, you retreat. And then there's the f moving forward toward the threat, uh, hopefully in an adaptive or an intelligent way. You would want to move forward towards a, you know, a cliff without a parachute type of thing, but you get the idea. And so it's not fight or flight. It's really fight, flight, or freeze. Can we play around this for a minute? Sure. Okay. So I, I, I'm, I am familiar with her research and I don't know where to point to, but um, Grossman and Siddle, two uh, authors, one is a lieutenant colonel, but did some nice work on this system for, uh, what's his book called? On, on Killing. And he added something that I go, ooh, I like it. And I want to add something to it that isn't well-researched. And I'm going to borrow Cutler and I are friends as well. So let's go freeze flee, fight. But what about submission? And I want to put a pin in that in a moment because I want to hear what your response is. And then what about flow? Yeah. So, um, these are, so submission to me is it's, it's in the pause response. So we broke it up into this kind of trinary, you know, pause forward or backward, um, scheme because it's what we could observe and we were certain about. You know, when you look at animal behavior, and in many ways when you look at human behavior, we don't know what the animal is feeling. Oftentimes we don't know what people are feeling. Oftentimes people don't know what themselves are feeling. So their subjective reports could help, but for instance, if I have a person in the lab and we have a, we, we do work on mice and we do work on humans and we create fear and visual fear and visual threat in humans using VR and we measure from the amygdala, we record direct signals from the amygdala, et cetera. And oftentimes you'll ask people what they're feeling while they take one of these three different responses. And it's, it's very subjective, you know, sometimes they don't even know. And so, um, if you have a very clear readout of submissive behavior, like for a dog rolling on its back and exposing its genitals, which is really a dog's most, it's a very submissive posture because many animals, this is kind of horrible to think about, but many animals injure each other by, um, by injuring the other animals, uh, reproductive organs so that they don't pass along their genetic information. They're not thinking that far ahead, but that's what they've been programmed to do. So unless you have a very clear readout, it's hard to, to look at, sub, um, submission and separate it from freeze. So we didn't do that, but that's not to say that it, it it's an interesting and, and certainly a valid, um, way of exploring this flow is a little trickier, you know, um, we could talk about flow states maybe at the end. There's certainly a visual component to flow, but of course you don't need vision in order to get into flow. Um, I guess the similarity with flow, and I think Stephen would um, second this, although I don't want to speak for him, but the it's very clear that when animals or humans take one of these three responses, that the pause response what we're calling freeze, but the pause response is the lowest level of what we call autonomic arousal or stress of activation. We measure that by pupil size, heart rate, breathing, sweating, and we can measure it from, directly from the brain as well. The flee response, the run and hide response is the next level up of, let's call it anxiety, autonomic arousal, et cetera. 
because we don't know what, again, what the animal or person is really feeling. We only know what they're doing, at least in our lab. That's what, that's what we're focused on. Now, the third response of moving forward towards a threat, and it's not always a physical threat of the sort, like a big object coming at you or moving across a, a narrow beam across uh, heights, uh, you know, over between two buildings. It can also be public speaking. It can be confronting an irate boss, you know, in, a, in an intelligent way, you know, in, a, in an adaptive way, of course, again. But the forward movement itself revealed something really interesting to us is that it that is the highest anxiety highest arousal response and yet when an animal or a human takes that step forward and the reason we call it the courage circuit is that it triggers activation of the release of a neurochemical called dopamine which of course many people are familiar with for its role and reward but dopamine is not only involved in making us feel good and it has this element of reward and it's associated with reaching goals but it also tends to reinforce, it changes the structure of those circuits so that we're more likely to engage in that behavior again, in part because it's desirable, but in part because the circuit itself gets um, wired up in a way that it's it's more likely to get triggered in the future. So for us, there were a couple surprises from Lindsay's study. One is that there really is a, a, a separate circuit in the brain for courage, but if you didn't, if you just looked at the level of stress in the system, or the animal or the person, you would say, well, they're really, really stressed out. But what we found was animals will actually work for that experience. And there's a famous study published by a guy named Robert Heath in the 1960s in the journal Science, another phenomenal journal, where he gave human beings the option to stimulate pretty much any area of their brain that they wanted. He got six people over, uh, over about four years that had electrodes at different areas of their brain. We could never do this study nowadays. And they could st self-stimulate anywhere they wanted. And so some brain areas, when they stimulated, they felt drunk. Some um, areas they felt um, they, got, uh, they wanted to mate. Other areas they felt hungry. Other areas they felt giddy. Other areas they felt rage, this kind of thing. Across subjects, the number one area, the winner of where people wanted to stimulate their brain was an area of the brain called the centromedian nucleus of the thalamus. Name is important, but it's analogous to the area of the brain that Lindsay discovered co it controls courage. And subjective report, if we're gonna put some value on subjective reports, the subjective report of what it feels like to stimulate that brain area is frustration and mild anger. And to me, this explains so much about human behavior. I also, I, I, um, I've been fortunate enough to do a little bit of uh, consulting work alongside David Goggins, and I think about his attitude toward leaning into challenge and that that sort of embracing friction. And of course, he's not the only one. There are a lot of people not, uh, of course, in the SEAL team community and other communities um, that embrace that friction as a means to not just accomplish something, but they seem to have somehow f engage these circuits to the point where that's the juice. And it it can lead to tremendous progress. In fact, I think this this circuit, because this circuit didn't arise recently, this circuit has been around for probably tens of thousands of years, if not longer, especially since it's present in so many animals, this circuit is largely responsible for humans driving through challenge. And it doesn't have to just be a physical challenge. It could be solving a pandemic. It could be solving a scientific problem, writing a great piece of music or a book. This circuit, this what I'm calling the courage circuit, is I think at the, at the heart of what it is to be uh, you know, a human in pursuit of 
greatness or in pursuit of something more than what you have at any moment. And that's really what dopamine is responsible for. Dopamine is the molecule that drives us toward things outside our immediate sphere of experience. All the other neurochemicals involved in reward, serotonin, oxytocin, the opioid system, they tend to make us quiescent and sedentary. They serve an important role for things like pair bonding, for you know petting your dog and just realizing how much you love your dog, um, for you know feeling what you need to feel to create bonds with what you already have. Dopamine, and I didn't say this, this is a book that's a great book if anyone wants to read it, and I didn't write it, called The Molecule of More, is a book that talks about this. It's the molecule that makes you say, I want more of that. I want to go out there in that direction. And it's largely responsible for where humanity is today, and it's going to be largely responsible for where we end up you know, in 100 years. Why do you say that last part about it's going to be largely responsible? Because it's about taking action? It's the Because it's about... It, it, it works. So the amazing thing about the dopamine system is it's, you know, it's most often talked about with gambling and drug abuse and sex behavior and, you know, facing th here, I'm talking about it with facing threats of a physical kind, but dopamine is works on very long time scales. It's what allows us to pursue things of great uncertainty over very long duration. You know, there's this you know, I don't want to go too far down the weeds, but there's this phenomenon of a reward prediction error, which basically has to do with the, the, the this fundamental discovery, not by my lab, but that shows that dopamine is released en route to goals as you pursue goals. And that makes total sense because you need that dopamine release to replenish motivation. You need it to replenish drive. You need to give some buoyancy to the system to continue to march off toward uh, these goals. And those goals can be very distant and, and based on a lot of uncertainties. But dopamine is really what moves mammals toward a new place from the place that they're in. The other neurochemicals, you know, with like serotonin and oxytocin tend to keep us in the same place physically. They don't tend to move our body. And there are other neurochemicals that are important. Acetylcholine drives focus and focuses our energy and attention. And these are broad, I'm making broad sweeping statements here, but this is largely true for the circuits they engage. Uh, norepinephrine and adrenaline tend to create some agitation in our system so that we move from places of rest and relaxation to, to modes of, of mobility and action. But Dopamine is uh, is a remarkable chemical in its ability to move us forward, drive us to the next milestone, ensure that the circuits that underlie that behavior get repeated, and so forth. Okay, uh, let me nerd out with you for a minute. Tyrosine. So tyrosine, as it relates to dopamine, yeah. Um, are you familiar with that bit of work? Yeah. There? Okay. So yeah. So oh yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, so the, the the simple question is like if you're if you don't have tyrosine on board, right? Back to you know Krebs cycle. But if you don't have tyrosine on board, and you feel stress, you make a conscious. Let's say you make a conscious decision to move toward it. And so I'm I'm I'm, I'm, I'm in some ways bifurcating the conscious and non-conscious responses to stress. But let's say that you we become a person of agency and we say, I'm going to move toward that thing. It, it heightens my stress in some ways, but I don't have the ability to make tyrosine for whatever reasons, right? I'm def deficient there. And it, does that mean, so I'm not going to be able to produce dopamine if that's, if I'm thinking about this correctly, which would mean that my act of courage would then not be reinforced. That's it right. Just and if be you, a shitty, <laughs> stressful, it would just be effort, it would just be a fight. It would just be effort. So, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so uh, 
so it sounds like uh, we'll get back to vision, I promise. But so when we're thinking about, neuro, these are all ne- what Michael and I are talking about are neuromodulators. So neuromodulators are distinct from other chemicals in the brain in that they're designed to modulate specific circuits. So dopamine gets released to change the activity of certain connections and things in the brain. Serotonin gets, goes and even if you squirted serotonin all over the brain, not all cells would respond to it, only certain cells, in particular cells involved in behaviors that are involved in pair bonding and, and satisfaction, right? So what he's referring to is that tyrosine is this amino acid precursor to making dopamine. Effort generally is derived from epinephrine and adrenaline, which are essentially the same thing. Uh, scientists are totally unimaginative um, <laughs> when it comes to naming, but they're so imaginative that they came up with four names for basically the same thing, noradrenaline, adrenaline, uh, epinephrine, and um, norepinephrine. norepinephrine. And then they're all very, they're not exactly the same depending on where they are in the brain or body, but just if you see here in those for sake of most discussions, just think adrenaline. So adrenaline moves us forward. It, it gets us in an activation state that we want to move forward. But over time, it's gonna, we're going to burn down. There's actually a beautiful, what I mean by that is we'll quit. And there's a beautiful study that was published in Cell earlier this year by a group from the Howard Hughes Medical Institute out in Virginia, showing that if effort is made over and over again and it's unsuccessful, epinephrine goes up faster and faster and eventually high levels of epinephrine in this one particular brainstem circuit, they trigger the quitting reflex. And I don't mean quitting like a cognitive quitting. I mean it shuts down the premotor neurons that control the motor neurons. So when epinephrine hits threshold, quitting happens. Now, dopamine, and this is the experiment that you laid out, the Gedanken experiment. Gedanken just means in your head. It's a kind of, Einstein talked about Gedanken experiment. So the Gedanken experiment that Michael pointed out was, well, okay, well, what if you have effort you have norepinephrine or adrenaline, but you don't have L-tyrosine, so you don't have dopamine. And that's exactly the right experiment because dopamine creates a reward in the system that buffers against these high levels of epinephrine. It engages circuits that actually, through synaptic connections, suppress that epinephrine to a point where it becomes manageable. You, we've all experienced this. If you've ever been really, really down in the dumps, or you're working with a team, or this could be sports team or business team, and it's just the worst, and somebody cracks a joke, immediately people, if it's a good joke, people get buoyancy. You feel like you can lean back into things. Now, it's so fast that it could, there's no way it could have been hormonal. It wasn't testosterone or estrogen or oxytocin, because those work on the time scale of hours and days and weeks, not milliseconds. That phenomenon is dopamine. It's dopamine triggering a reset by engaging a whole new set of circuits in a way of viewing the situation. And so dopamine changes our perspective by making us outward facing again, and also by making things seem tractable or possible. The extreme example of this, which is not a good one, and I don't recommend this behavior, is when people take amphetamines or cocaine, their behavior shifts to high arousal and an attitude of everything I need is outside me and pursuit. Pursuit, 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 pursuit. Contrast that with drugs of abuse that trigger high levels of serotonin, you know, marijuana, some other drugs as well. And I'm not here to say what drugs people should or shouldn't be doing. I'm not a cop. I'm a scientist, but I'm just describing the extreme form. Tend to make people more quiescent and more placid and kind of happy with what they've got. They might get hungry, but they're not really rabid with intensity. So you've experienced this on a a safer legal level. Well, I guess 
some some of these drugs are legal now, but when you eat a high tryptophan as the precursor to serotonin, serotonin, when you eat a high tryptophan meal, you eat turkey and you feel sleepy. Part of the reason you feel sleepy after a Thanksgiving meal is because you filled your gut with so much food, there's a ton of blood there. But the other reason is you have high levels of tryptophan. So these molecules were designed to put us in pursuit, but buffer our the effort process so it's manageable. They were also designed to give us satisfaction when we finally reach goals and to pair bond because people, if you've ever dealt with somebody who takes cocaine, they are very difficult because they don't really care about interpersonal relations. It's all about getting stuff. Healthy people pursue things with this norepinephrine and dopamine system. They relish in the wins, but they also relish in the the, the molecules, the serotonin and oxytocin and molecules that reward people for what they have. Uh, Again, I'm referencing this book, The Molecule of More, but the sort of what are called the here and now molecules, the ones that lead to satisfaction with what you've got here and now as opposed to what's out there in the world. So the, the, to kind of circle back to the courage circuit and the way that people can implement this, people should, if you're, if you're, a, high, you know, if you're a hard driving person, there are a couple things that are really important to keep in mind. Epinephrine is what gets you moving and you can be the, the most type A, you can be type AA. I guess that's a different thing. You can be A to the extreme. It would probably be the better way to describe it. <laughs> a is a whole nother phenomenon. A to the extreme and eventually burnout does happen because the rewards are not coming. You're not getting dopamine in the right pattern. There's something called reward prediction error. If you get more dopamine in pursuit than you get when you finally reach the goal, it's going to lead to a dramatic disappointment mm. and dramatic and dramatic depression. This is well studied in humans and in animals. Reward prediction error says if you get the dopamine signal at the final at the final finish line has to exceed the dopamine along the way or it becomes a depletion event. Mm. If so if you are if you're a hard driving person, you definitely want to use this dopamine system intelligently, you want to incur, you want to reward your little wins and route to your goals. You want to, that can be through subjective telling yourself you made it, made it to a small milestone toward your team cohesion, whatever wins you want to register those wins. You don't need to over celebrate them, but you need to register them. Even if it's just for moments, even if it's just through gratitude, which is actually a powerful practice. And then when you reach a win, it has to be rewarded in a, in a major way. And if you do that, it's more likely you'll be able to re-engage those same circuits in the future. You know, I've always been struck. I've, I didn't play football, but I've always been struck by when you look at the Super Bowl, and I know you've worked with the, the Seahawks extensively. Uh, you know, when you look at two teams playing in the Super Bowl, I have to believe that they're all at max output. This is everything. Everything's on the line and it's all public. And when you look at the winning team, the winning team is not exhausted. They suddenly have energy to spare. They're jumping up and down. They're throwing buckets of whatever it is, is in the buckets nowadays. They're, they're celebrating for days. People have made a lot of the testosterone boost that comes of that. That's a later stage thing and a very slow signal. That is dopamine. What you're observing there is the epinephrine being crushed back down to manageable levels because of a huge increase in dopamine. The key is you don't want to do that in route to your goals or else you're not going to feel, you're not going to get the reinforcement of the circuits when you finally reach those end goals. The other thing that's really important, and I, you know, I've seen this a lot out here in Silicon Valley. I have some friends in the tech community who've done very well for themselves. And then it's like the depression sets in. What's the meaning? What am I going to do? I need to do 45 transcendental meditation retreats. I need to find myself, all this, which is great. And I applaud their self-discovery, right? 
and it's not just people in the tech sector, but what they haven't done in most cases is support these serotonin systems and the reward systems that come from the deep satisfaction and joy that comes from great relationships that come from your dog, a relationship with your dog or your cat, or if you're a cat person or your children or your spouse or, or your friends for that matter, or your coworkers, you have to balance these reward systems because they, they're not just independent systems. They all support each other. And so that's the struggle because we also need to work really hard in order to accomplish things. Hmm. Very, that's a great insight. Okay. Let's get to those three brilliant gems that you got about sleep, about uh, something more powerful than a deep breath, and then optic flow. Because you mentioned breath, I will add real quickly. So my lab studies vision and how it impacts brain states, um, how it allows us to move through stress, calm ourselves, et cetera, move into states of courage. We also study respiration. We're launching a large-scale study right now with a, a guy named David Spiegel in the Department of Psychiatry looking at how respiration impacts brain states and body states and so forth. And I just want to pass this off as a tip because um, respiration and breath work has gotten a lot more attention recently. But one of the quickest ways you can calm yourself, in fact, the fastest way I'm aware of it, using respiration is to you somewhat follow the advice of take a deep breath, but you also make the exhale longer than the inhale, but that information is fairly well known now. But there's a specific class of neurons in your brainstem that are responsible for sighing. These are neurons that are activated periodically throughout the day and while you sleep. And these neurons have the specific job of balancing the ratio of carbon dioxide and oxygen in your bloodstream. So this isn't uh, you know, a hack. This is a set of neurons that were created specifically with the purpose of rebalancing oxygen and carbon dioxide in order to reestablish calm. And so the way to activate these neurons is you inhale twice, ideally through the nose, and then you exhale long once through the mouth. So it's inhale, then another little inhale, even if you have to sneak in just a tiny bit more air, and then a long exhale. Now what this does, in addition to balancing the ratio of carbon dioxide and oxygen, the bloodstream and lungs, is it activates a circuit that goes from this very special organ, the diaphragm that we've all heard of. There's a, a nerve that controls the diaphragm called the phrenic nerve, but that diaphragm also sends signals back to the brainstem and informs the brain about the status of the body. And so your brain is constantly listening to the frequency of signals like a Morse code coming from this phrenic nerve. The phrenic nerve goes in both directions and it's saying, is my body alert? Is my body calm? And it's comparing that to what the needs of your situation are. So if you're out running and you're breathing hard, your brain is like, oh, this is great. I need to be breathing hard. In fact, maybe I need to be breathing harder. But if you're about to go and give a, a talk or you're trying to recover from exercise or you need to listen to somebody who's telling you something challenging, you need to calm down, what you need to do, or wait, I'm suggesting you do, is this double inhale, long exhale, and maybe repeat it two or three times, ensures that your diaphragm sends the brain, these sighing neurons, the signal, okay, yes, you're sighing, that's balancing carbon dioxide and oxygen ratios, and it signals back to the brain, it's time to be calm. Because the brain doesn't really know what's going on in the outside world, except in reference to what's going on internally, what's called interoception. So that's the, that's the first tip. And what I like about this is it's based on respiratory physiology, gas exchange in the blood and lungs, and the neural circuitry that, you know, is a real thing. Neuroanatomy is there, you know, I, you can see this phrenic nerve. It's not an imaginary thing. It's not spiritual. It's, it's mechanical. And 
how, how certain are you about the exhale through the mouth? Because my findings have led me to the nose as a, as a way to conserve some of the um, dioxide exchange. Yeah, you know, um, I suggest it that way because um, I'm glad you brought that up because for a lot of people who are doing breath work or doing some conscious breathing each day, nasal breathing is going to be more powerful because of the the various things you described and also nasal breathing in general throughout the day is probably a good idea. There's a great book called Jaws, um, mm-hmm. uh, which is um, by Ehrlich and Kahn, some colleagues of mine at Stanford talking about how nasal breathing is is really important for fighting off infection and for jaws, the integrity of the jaw and teeth, especially in kids. I highly recommend that book. Um, for most people who are just trying to learn this and are going to come to the table, um, if they inhale twice through the nose and they try and exhale, it's going to feel like it's blocked because a lot of people feel like they have um, obstructions. Most people have obstructions because the, they're not using their nasal sinuses enough. And so, you know, it, so your advice is good. If you can do it all through the nose, double inhale through the nose, long exhale through the nose, even better. Just most people can't sort of manage their respiration that well through the nose because they haven't done enough breathing, conscious breathing to allow the, the sinuses to dilate. The sinuses can change shape. Um, so if you, yeah, all through the nose would be ideal. Okay. Brilliant. Okay. Good. Okay. Awesome. So, yep. So in terms of vision and and stress control, so first of all, now we, based on our earlier discussion, we know why the eyes are there. They're there to control our internal arousal state. So if you're sleeping great at night, you have tons of energy all day and then you don't need to follow this advice. But if you're not in that category, then the two practices that are most critical for achieving that are going to be to view light early in the day, close to when you wake up. Hopefully that's in the morning. Ideally it's sunlight. Yes, it could be through a window, but ideally you would be outside and you just get two minutes to 10 minutes of sunlight. You don't need to stare directly at the sun. And even if there's cloud cover, a lot of photons are coming through. It doesn't have to be sunny Southern California. It can be the depth of winter in England, believe it or not, and a lot of light energy is coming through far more than you're going to get from artificial lights. Okay. The other thing is to get some sunlight in your eyes in the evening as the sun is setting. Now, I've had people from Scandinavia, and I have a stepmom from Scandinavia tell me, wait, no, the sun's not out in Scandinavian winter. Okay. It does come up in the, and then it goes down very briefly. If you're in that extreme environment, you might need to rely on artificial lights for this kind of thing, but view Sunlight, get photons in your eyes during the day, especially in the early part of the day, but also in the evening, because it sets the appropriate timing of secretion of this hormone cortisol, which which will make you alert at the right times of day. And you want cortisol dropping by about 9 p.m. And in the psychiatric community, it's well known that a peak in 9 p.m. cortisol is kind of a signature of anxiety and depression. And it and it's related to things like insomnia. You want cortisol up early in the day. You don't want it coming up late in the day. The other practice that's very important, and I alluded to this earlier, is to avoid bright light exposure between the hours of 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. Now, if you work a job where this is requ- where it requires that you be up during that time, you might want to use you know blue blocker type technology or something. Or if you do have to be awake, use dim lights. Even better are dim lights set low in the room because the cells in the retina that transmit this information about time of day to the brain are on the lower half of the retina, which means they view the upper visual field because they were designed to look at the sun. So you can you can look at a nice fireplace if you want. You can have dim lights in the evening, but really try and avoid bright light in the middle of the night because it activates that pro-depression circuit we talked about earlier that also signals the pancreas and can really throw off blood sugar rhythms. 
another time maybe we could talk about jet lag and shift work because it's a whole two-hour discussion but there are things that you can do people in the military are adopting some of these behaviors um shift workers to to help their their circadian health um when they can't when they can't be um following a normal schedule but we'll get to that another time so that's just kind of basic stuff now the other one which is as far as i know the fastest way to introduce calm to the nervous system and this can be used in conjunction with the breathing we talked about before, is to employ this amazing ability that we all have to switch our vision from focused, what I'll call focal vision, on a particular location in space. So think about looking at your phone, looking at someone's face, looking at a computer screen, versus panoramic vision, which is the kind of vision that you're in when you're walking down the street, providing you're not looking at a phone, or you're biking, or you're stationary. And you can even do this now if you're stationary and listening, you just... What you're going to do is you're going to keep your head and eyes stationary, but you're going to deliberately, consciously dial out your gaze so that you can see the ceiling, the floor, the walls around you, and even yourself in the environment that you're in simply by consciously controlling the, what you're doing is you're controlling the muscles of the inside of the eye, believe it or not, you're moving the lens. So the way that you do this is you keep your head and eyes stationary. Although if you're walking along or you're moving along, you don't have to be you know, statue still, um, you just don't need to move your eyes around a lot or your head around a lot. And you're going to dial out your gaze. And, you know, for the yogic practitioners out there, you could think of this as soft gaze or something like that, but really I'll describe the, why this works. What it's doing is it's disengaging a circuit for alertness and vigilance in the brainstem that leads to what, that when you disengage it, it leads to a very rapid but meaningful shift from, uh, let's call it a higher stress state to one of more calm. Now, looking at one location like a phone or being in a conversation with someone or looking at a computer screen doesn't itself cause stress. That would depend on what you're looking at. But it is sort of like spending quarters in the quarter slots. If you spend enough of those, you can run through a lot of money. You're spending out this norepinephrine mechanism. When you, that we talked about earlier, when you go into this panoramic view, you're releasing that. So remember, it's like a car. You can accelerate a car. That would be like stress by pressing on the accelerator. You can hit the brake, which will slow you down, but you can also slow down by coming off the accelerator. So in this analogy, the panoramic vision is like coming off the accelerator. And the reason I like this so much is for a couple reasons. One is, first of all, it's grounded in the basis of this what where pathway that we were talking about earlier. Um, second of all, it it's very fast and it's covert. So I can be in conversation or I can be in action and I can do this without having to change my breathing. You know, if I start doing breath work in the middle of a meeting, uh, it's kind of, it's, it's weird depending on the meeting. Um, if I do a couple inhales and that longer exhale, I can do that somewhat covertly. But if I'm if I'm speaking, that becomes very hard to do. And so this panoramic vision thing is allows you to move into calmer states and to control those states very quickly because they disengage this vigilance circuit. Now, some people say, well, I don't want to disengage vigilance because I want to make sure I'm fully aware of everything that's going on. And that's where the real magic of this is. It engages this where pathway or it has you rely more heavily on the, what we called earlier, the where pathway as opposed to the what pathway. And what that enables you to do is actually detect, is to detect events in your environment 
on much faster time scales than you would if you were focusing your vision very tightly. So great athletes know this, great martial artists know this, that if you really wanna see things coming at you and detect all those events, you can't afford to have your vision locked to any one location. So this is actually the mechanism that you use anytime you're moving through space. Um, and it's what keeps you from running into other objects. It's what allows you to see things in your periphery. People who have high situational awareness are often, they're not scanning the environment by jumping their eyes from point to point. They're bringing in the whole environment all at once, the whole gestalt. And actually we have a paper that we're in the process of submitting now, which hopefully will be out in a, you know, this year, which shows that actually a signature of anxiety, we looked at people with high generalized anxiety, is the fact that they evaluate environments, in particular novel environments, by darting their eyes from location to location as opposed to just taking in the visual environment all at once. And that brings me to the, the final sort of takeaway, which is optic flow. So when you move through space, whether or not you're walking or running or just walking to the kitchen, whether or not you're on a bicycle, and in most cases, if you're driving, provided that you're not looking at the dash all uh, the whole time or looking at your phone, in fact, if you're looking at your phone any of the time, you're not gonna you're not gonna experience this. You're you're in what's called optic flow. Things are moving past your retina at varying speed, depending on how fast you're moving. But your brain has knowledge of how fast you're moving and the fact that you're generating that, even if it's in a car or by walking or running or biking or surfing, and it cancels out the movement in a way that says, okay, these objects aren't moving past me, I'm moving past them. And that has the property of triggering some of the, some release of some of these positive neurochemicals that at once relax our nervous system and make us feel very alert and aware. And this is where Steven Kotler and I have been in some discussions about flow, because I, I don't have a definition, a neuro biological definition of flow that I can point to a specific experiment in the lab yet. But, you know, in the original definition of flow that Cheeks and put forward was quite different than the one that people are using now. But um, this optic flow is a, is a very real phenomenon. It's been studied for, for decades because we are constantly genera generating little head and eye movements to stabilize the image on our eyes as we move through space. And that mechanism evolved to coordinate with our balance, to coordinate with our limb movements. And all of this boils down to a set of circuits in the brain and body that make it so that when we're moving through space, it has this property of relaxing us and giving us a sensation that is somewhat rewarding. And that has to, with all with almost certainty, boil down to the release of the kinds of neurochemicals we were talking about earlier. And so what this translates to is at least once a day, get out and move, experience optic flow, even if it's through walking. For folks that are in wheelchairs, it would be even possible in a wheelchair, even if you were someone who's on crutches. Optic flow doesn't have to be fast. It can be at, uh, you know, it can be at slow speeds. Ideally, it's variable speeds. But this, I believe, underlies the, the sensation, the both calming and invigorating and kind of replenishing feelings that we get from taking a bike ride or a long run or swimming for that matter. Um, and so get those sunlight, get the sunlight in the morning and the evening, avoid bright lights in the middle of the night, use panoramic vision and this, what I call a proper side, double inhale, long exhale breathing to calm, to shift yourself toward calm and try and get into optic flow of some sort. It could be vigorous exercise, but it doesn't have to be at least once a day. And the people that do this 
at least report back to me, and we've done some studies on various aspects of this in different pieces and papers, um, tremendously positive effects on sleep, well-being, stress management. And in general, you're learning how to control what is typically called the autonomic nervous system. You're learning how to control the aspects of your neurology and your wiring that feed directly into your state of mind and psychology and well-being in a, in a very deliberate way. And none of these things take very long. They're very fast and they're very effective. And they're very fast and very effective because they were hardwired into us to be very fast and very effective. I love the panoramic vision. You know, this is great because the panoramic vision piece is actually reverse engineering what happens to our brain under the sympathetic activation right? Which is darting around to find the danger. And you're saying, oh, why don't we re reverse engineer that and just kind of zone out a bit if I have the feeling right or the, 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 the essence of it, right? It's almost like a, mm, just a relax. It's a forcing function of relaxation to allow your gaze to be open. It's almost, you could almost think about it like, um, let your eyesight be a little blurry, you know, like, but that's not quite right. That I'm, I'm, Extension, yeah. ex accentuating the feeling, but it's just allowing it uh, to slip into more of a gaze than a hypervigilant focus. Is that exactly the practice? That's exa yeah. exactly right. Yeah, you know, cool. when, when we, when we hit a stress response, our pupils dilate and that basically makes your eye like portrait mode on your phone. You can see individual things very clearly and the rest becomes blurry and untangible to you. When you're in this panoramic vision, not only can you see more of your visual scene, but there's a relaxation of the stress response. You're more, your situational awareness goes up. Your reaction times go up four times, four X, and you're calming yourself using a mechanism that was built for this purpose you're, but as you said, uh, you're, you're controlling your neural circuitry. So at the very beginning you said, you know, we were talking about, are you top down, are you sort of thinking about top down processing in the brain or, or bottom up processing in the brain? And this is an instance of strong top down processing. You're using your conscious control to take control of these limbic or fear or stress related circuits that for, you know, hundreds of years, people have thought were outside our control and could only be regulated by slow events, like eating a big meal and feeling relaxed or something. But there are very fast, very, uh, you know, powerful mechanisms that we can engage that require no training at all that can do this. I love it. Okay. I've got a couple double clicks, like super crisp questions is, you, okay. So I want to talk about cortisol release and sleep. And obviously you want cortisol to be released more during the day, morning slash day, as opposed right. to nighttime. Okay. What if the only time you can work out is 630 at night? 7:30 at night. And that's the only time you can figure out how to get some fitness in and under, you know, high stress, high strain, there's a cortisol dump. And now you've got some cortisol yeah. flowing at let's say 8:30 at night. What do you would you, what would you recommend? Yeah. So, and here I'm going to make some recommendations that extend into my, you know, pr my personal practices and some experience doing some consulting with various groups. So it's, it's ba it's based in some science, but not science that my lab's done. So if I recommend things about nutrition or that sort of thing, that's what, what's going on there. Um, just to make a, I want clarity about where I'm drawing my sources from. So the, if, if I'm, sometimes I'll finish out the day and I'm pretty wiped and I'm kind of been grinding along and I don't know if I should exercise or I should rest. And so sometimes I'll find myself doing a workout or a run at 8 PM and feeling spectacular afterwards and getting a great night's sleep. So it can't just be that exercise is driving up adrenaline. Even if it's very intense exercise, sometimes, um, it can lead to a, re a post exercise relaxation state that's deeper than the stress 
we showed up to the workout with, right? So the nerve, the autonomic nerve system, if it's very stressed, it tends to have a rebound. This is why some people pass out when they see blood. That's not because they're so stressed. It's because they're so stressed that the, the, it, then they suddenly get flipped the other way. They got so calm. They fell asleep basically. So, um, so that's, that's why they, that happens. So the system is, is, is sort of like on a hinge. And so in the evening, if you're going to work out and you're showing up to that workout with a ton of extra energy, well then blow off that energy and you'll probably cruise right into sleep much better afterward. If you're showing up to that workout exhausted, then you want to be careful that you're not driving yourself towards more exhaustion because you can't really do that for too many days before you deplete yourself. That's that norepinephrine depletion thing that we were talking about before. But there are a couple of things one can do with nutrition. We talked about uh, amino acids and biasing our neurotransmitters. Really toward the evening, you don't just want cortisol low, you also want things like serotonin, high so you can emphasize tryptophan rich foods so it's not just turkey but some dairy products if that's in in your nutritional plan but complex carbohydrates things like rice and pastas are actually if it works for you are best consumed towards sleep and during the day the foods that promote tyrosine release are going to be things like red meats um nuts vegetables and you know complex carbohydrates and probably should be in more, um, you know, occupy more of your diet toward late in the day. This is that opposite of what a lot of people describe. But of course, I'm not a nutritionist. I'm just sort of emphasizing the effects of different foods on neurotransmitter milieu. I will say what I said before, which is that if you eat a huge meal, it doesn't matter if it's red meat, nuts, pasta, or Snickers. If your gut is full, you're going to siphon a ton of blood to your gut and you're going to get sleepy. So that's just regardless of, in, of what you bring in. Okay. So I want to make sure I heard you correctly is that you're saying eat complex carbs and meats and nuts earlier in the day? Or are you saying do those later in the day? I missed the kind of final point. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I, I wasn't clear. When you want to be active, so for most people that's going to be during the day and maybe even into the evening a bit. For most people, you're going to do best ingesting foods that promote that contain tyrosine and promote things like dopamine and norepinephrine. So that would be red meat, uh, nuts, and vegetables we should probably be eating all the time, right? If you eat fruit, you know, small amounts of fruit are fine. As you, when you want to rest and you want to slow down and you want to sleep and relax, that's when you want carbohydrates. You're going to want um, pastas, grains, and those sorts of things. So towards sleep. So if I had a hard workout at 8 p.m. and I'm wide awake and I want to sleep, I'm going to have pasta or oatmeal or something or rice that's going to allow that L-tryptophan mechanism and ideally turkey too, to kick in and allow my nervous system to transition to more of what we call a parasympathetic state or it just means calmer. Um, some people, including myself, and I'm not here to make supplement recommendations, I don't, I don't do that, but what I do also to for years I had trouble sleeping and when I finally started moving my the bulk of my carbohydrate intake either to immediately after high intensity workouts, regardless of when they were, or into the evening and nighttime, my sleep vastly improved. And I also, I use theanine, T-H-E-A-N-I-N-E. -I, -E. I use 200 milligrams of theanine and I use magnesium threonate, T-H-R-E-O-N-A-T-E, -E, because those together 
promote the secretion of a, of a neurotransmitter called GABA, which tends to shut off the forebrain, which is responsible for thinking. You don't really want to be thinking too hard when you want to fall asleep. So I'm not, I'm not here to promote supplements. I, I don't, you know, that's not what I do, but for, but I do take those in conjunction with higher carbohydrate meals toward the end of the day in order to relax. So basically it's meat, nuts, and vegetables when you want to be alert and it's carbohydrates, vegetables, and smaller amounts of protein. You can still have some eggs or fish or, or whatever, or even red meat later in the day. But the idea is that you're, you're biasing the production of dopamine and norepinephrine in the early part of the day, as well as acetylcholine for that matter, for, for focus. And then you're eating, uh, I'm eating, uh, more carbohydrates and turkeys and things like that in, in the evening time in order to promote the L-tryptophan serotonin pathway. Now, one thing I don't recommend for myself or for anybody is to take neurotransmitters directly. A lot of people nowadays are kind of dabbling in taking L-DOPA or a, a supplement called mecunapurines, which is actually, it's actually a bean from Southeast Asia that, that, that chemically is almost identical to L-DOPA, which is very close to dopamine itself in chemical structure, or they're taking 5-HTP, which is very close to serotonin itself. I think um, and there's some evidence for this, that the closer you are to the actual chemical that you're trying to produce, the more likely you're going to get disruption of the synthesis of that chemical. In other words, you're going to start messing up your own endogenous um, creation of those chemicals. This is also true of hormones and things like that. But when you start, but amino acids are, are early stage precursors to these things. So you're kind of, you're, you're tilting the balance in, in, a, in a certain direction by eating these foods and getting certain amino acids rather than um, you know, blitzing your system with serotonin itself or with dopamine itself, which gives you a, gives you the effect you want in the very short term, but you can often pay a severe price the next day. People can end up with insomnia the next day if they're using serotonin, or they can end up with, um, dopamine depletion, which can make them feel depressed. I mean, these are powerful chemicals and I don't think anyone should really be dabbling with neurochemicals in this kind of direct high potency way, unless you really have a, you know, physician who's, who's working with you and, and has instructed you to do that. Yeah. And I would double click on that, you know, two, in two ways. One is unless you're doing a blood draw and you've really got some examination of what's happening internally. Um, but I, I would say even at a blood draw, I wouldn't start there. I would start with, right. um, let's say that you, Let's say that you uh, you've got some neurotransmitter stuff that you're noticing. I would I would double down on the amino acids. And just for folks that might not know what that is, like anything that's got an L in front of it, for the most part, is a amino acid like L-tyrosine, mm -hmm. L-tryptophan, L-theanine. And so check those out for sure. And you know I was part of a company. This is uh, I'm not really part of it anymore. Like uh, it, it's it's a good, it was a good drink company, but we're trying to create like an ideal focus slash calm. And uh, mm -hmm. it was good theanine, like a high quality grade theanine and some magnesium in there. Um, and theanine is one of those really interesting amino acids that uh, has some, some focus properties that we really liked at, with some relaxation properties. I, I really, I really liked that yeah. that structure. Yeah, you know, ten years ago, if we were having this conversation and my colleagues overheard it, they would they would be rolling their eyes. But you know, I actually know. I, I, know, I can't I know, say. His, I know. <laughs> I feel the I same way. I, I can't say his name, but but there's a very famous and in my community famous um, uh, Nobel Prize winning neuroscientist who who um, gave up smoking and felt like he lost his focus when he gave up smoking, and he did it because he didn't want to get lung cancer, of course. But you know, smoking is nicotine and 
the receptor for acetylcholine is a nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. So he uses various compounds that I, I'm not going to mention because um, I'm not going to out him in order to keep his focus now that he's a, a, um, a recovered smoker um, who has, no longer smokes. But, you know, these are powerful neuro neurochemicals, right? What, we, what I've been talking about over the last, I guess we've been talking for a couple hours now, um, about these things like acetylcholine for focus, dopamine for drive and motivation and, and reward and serotonin for feel good in the present. These, these chemicals are the core ingredients. These are the um, macronutrients of brain states. And they really, um, you can take them exogenously, and many people do, and there's prescription drugs that emphasize these pathways too. But when people start dabbling, you run into trouble. The other thing is that it's always best to see what you can ge generate from your own stores of these chemicals. Uh, you have tons of stores of these chemicals in you, and to be able to access them through behavior, through even if it's um, you know just driving yourself and motivation. There, I have a good friend who was in the SEAL teams for 22 years, and um, I won't mention his name, but he he jokes. He says, you know, there there are um, people they call them nuts and berries guys. These are guys that like can't do the workout. They're obviously not team guys. He was referring to people outside the teams in in a, in a kind of a joking way. He was like, oh yeah, nuts and berries guys. The people that can't do the workout or can't do the run unless they have their exact amino acid shake and they have their tyrosine thing, you know, and and he himself takes supplements. So what he was referring to is it's it's fine to lean to these things in a, if they're if it's done safely because they can be effective. But you always want to check in and make sure that you can generate the core of what you're aspiring to achieve without anything because it's just a great place to know that you can do that on demand and that you don't need any of that stuff. So I strive to not be a nuts and berries guy because he teases me, but I I do. Um, I do a lot of things with nutrition and supplementation and mindset and so forth to try and access these pathways. Andrew Huberman, legend. Thank you. Awesome. Where can we find you? Where can we, where can we pay attention to what you're putting into the world and be part of um, your mission in life? So, well, my laboratory uh, is always recruiting subjects. Right now we're a little bit, um, we're, we're doing that mainly remotely because of this COVID-19 situation. But um, the best place to find me for most people is going to be, believe it or not, at Instagram. I give uh, some short tutorials on different aspects of neuroscience as well as some actionable takeaways. And that's Huberman Lab, H-U-B-E-R-M-A-N-L-A-B, all one word, all lowercase. Um, and so you can look there. I do respond to messages. I sometimes take a little while to do it because I get absorbed into other things from time to time. But that's a great place um, if you want to learn more about neuroscience and practical applications of brain science and brain states for performance, stress, and all that kind of stuff. And then in general, I'll announce there from time to time about uh, experiments that we're running. And here it's kind of fun because I can actually say we pay you. So we pay subjects to participate in experiments where we're having them do specific patterns of respiration or breathing. And we're collecting metrics, everything from cortisol, uh, to sleep patterns and so forth. So we're going to be ramping up a number of studies over the next uh, 12 months and hopefully for a very long time thereafter. So check back there at Instagram from time to time. And then, of course, if anyone's um, ever in the Bay Area, uh, shoot me an Instagram. We're always looking for in-lab subjects as well. But I think that should be plenty. And um, th thanks for allowing the opportunity to, to, to mention those. Oh, so good. Okay, awesome. I can't wait to do this again. I know you got a book coming out, uh, you know, uh, 2021 ish. And so, you know, uh, let's circle back a handful of times before that, like you're a wealth of information and, um, the practical, simple approaches to improvement are clear. 
And so mm-hmm. thank you, brother. Appreciate you. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to connect with your audience and to connect with you. And I really, um, I really value your questions. They were, they were, they were challenging in the best ways. They forced me to think much harder uh, than I would have had to otherwise. And, um, and I'm really quite grateful. Thank you so much, Michael. Yeah, man. All right. Thank you so much for diving into another episode of Finding Mastery with us. Our team loves creating this podcast and sharing these conversations with you. We really appreciate you being part of this community. And if you're enjoying the show, the easiest no-cost way to support is to hit the subscribe or follow button wherever you're listening. Also, if you haven't already, please consider dropping us a review on Apple or Spotify. We are incredibly grateful for the support and feedback. If you're looking for even more insights, we have a newsletter we send out every Wednesday. Punch over to findingmastery.com slash newsletter to sign up. This show wouldn't be possible without our sponsors, and we take our recommendations seriously. And the team is very thoughtful about making sure we love and endorse every product you hear on the show. If you want to check out any of our sponsor offers you heard about in this episode, you can find those deals at findingmastery.com slash sponsors. And remember, no one does it alone. The door here at Finding Mastery is always open to those looking to explore the edges and the reaches of their potential so that they can help others do the same. So join our community, share your favorite episode with a friend, and let us know how we can continue to show up for you. Lastly, as a quick reminder, information in this podcast and from any material on the Finding Mastery website and social channels is for information purposes only. If you're looking for meaningful support, which we all need, one of the best things you can do is to talk to a licensed professional. So seek assistance from your healthcare providers. Again, a sincere thank you for listening. Until next episode, be well, think well, and keep exploring.